0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events.
1: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today on the show, a new virtual reality exhibit at the DuSable Museum allows visitors to step into history and witness one of the most iconic civil rights moments in America.
2: I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today.
1: That's coming up, but first... The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned yesterday that the U.S. should prepare for an outbreak of the coronavirus.
2: It could be at a very small level or it could be at a larger level. Whatever happens, we're totally prepared. We have the best people in the world.
0: I was very disappointed with the comments of the CDC yesterday and members of the Trump administration around coronavirus. Everyone should take comfort and, and know that this is something we are monitoring very closely.
1: A new case of coronavirus was confirmed in Northern California, Wednesday that brings the total number of cases in the U.S. to 60. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, it's the first U.S. case of unknown origin. That means the patient did not travel outside the country and did not have contact with another patient known to have the coronavirus, known as COVID-19. The CDC says it's only a matter of time before the virus begins to spread in the U.S., though local state and city officials are urging calm. So I checked in with Dr. Allison Bartlett. She's Associate Medical Director of the Infection Control Program at the University of Chicago Medicine. And I started out by asking Dr. Bartlett one simple question. How
3: worried should we be? I think that's a great question. And the shorter answer is we really don't know where this is going to go. So I think the best things that we can do are control the things that we have control of and do our best to prevent ourselves from getting infections, but also prepare in case there are measures that need to be taken by public health to control the spread such as school closures and work closures.
1: As we mentioned at the top, there are now 60 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. And the latest is a case of unknown origin.
3: Is that a sign the infection is spreading? Certainly that does suggest that there's more coronavirus out in the country than we knew about. I don't think anyone in the public health community is surprised by this case that doesn't have an obvious source where they've caught the infection. We know that there is limited access for testing in the United States, so we're suspicious that there are probably more cases out there that we have not yet been able to identify. Give us some
1: context. We know of 60 confirmed cases here in the U.S. When we look at the rest of the world, when we look at the number of cases globally, where does that stand?
3: Globally, this gets updated at least once a day. We're well over 80,000 cases across the globe. Yesterday was the first day that there were actually more cases identified outside of China than inside of China, which again suggests that in part the measures that have been taken in China are helping contain the spread. But also there are many other countries where there are cases both, like most of the U.S. cases, known to have traveled to or contact with someone with the coronavirus but also cases where we are unable to pinpoint the source.
1: What do we know about how the disease is spread from person to person?
3: So we draw parallels between this and other coronaviruses and other respiratory viruses. With most respiratory viruses, they're spread by what we call droplets. So when you cough or sneeze, little particles are expelled into the air that uh, other individuals within a few feet of you can either inhale or they land on their mouth or their nose or their eyes. It can also be spread from touching the infected secretions, so using a doorknob after someone infected had touched the doorknob without washing your hands.
1: Does that mean that COVID-19 is airborne or do we no, do we not know that yet?
3: In the medical community, we use the word airborne in a very specific way, which doesn't mean anything spread through the air, which logically it should. We really use it for pathogens like chickenpox and measles to say particles that remain in the air suspended for hours after the person who's infected has left. So we don't have evidence that it's sort of that sort of spread. But certainly if someone with coronavirus coughs, particles will travel through the air to you and could land on you and cause infection.
1: Now, the city of San Francisco has had zero confirmed cases, but declared a state of emergency over coronavirus. Several counties in California have taken similar action. Is that an appropriate response at this point?
3: There's not truly a state of emergency. Uh, What we have done at our hospital, I think, similar to what other hospitals and communities are doing, is activating our emergency response team. So it's more in the spirit of preparedness, Let's mobilize all of the resources, get everyone communicating on the same page and planning together for when we need to act.
1: Now, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has expressed frustration with federal officials over their public response to the virus. Let's listen.
0: I will candidly tell you that I was very disappointed with the comments of the CDC yesterday and members of the Trump administration around coronavirus. Everyone should take comfort and, and know that this is something we are monitoring very closely. We are looking at the experience of other cities and other countries. Um, and I think that we have a plan in the event that this virus rears its head and starts to um, spread here in the city of Chicago.
1: What did you make of the comments of President Trump and the CDC yesterday? Do you share Mayor Lightfoot's concerns?
3: I think that this is a very difficult balance to run, right? This is a new, uh, potentially scary infection, co-circulating with other respiratory viruses, especially the flu, which we know is a very severe infection. The risk to any one individual in the United States right now is incredibly low, but this is a rapidly evolving field, and new cases are being reported minute by minute. So we need to be nimble and prepared in advance of potential widespread coronavirus activity. So I think that's where, again, controlling the things that you can, making sure you're washing your hands, covering your mouth when you cough, staying home when you're sick, staying away from other people who are sick— are important things to focus on, not just for COVID-19, but flu and all the other respiratory pathogens, but also start thinking about preparing for things that you can't control, school closures and business closures.
1: Dr. Bartlett, for Chicagoans who are traveling, should we be wearing face masks? Should we postpone our travel plans?
3: Those are great questions. I'll address the mask question first. There's really no evidence that a healthy person wearing a mask out in public is going to protect them from the spread of an infection. The particles can slip through the sides of the mask, and really your efforts are much better focused on staying away from sick people, practicing good hand-washing frequently. It's different if you are someone who is sick. If you are sick and coughing, wearing a mask can help protect others around you. And it's also different for our healthcare workers, where we're using specially fitted masks in a controlled clinical setting, where that is an important part of keeping our healthcare workers safe. The travel changes minute by minute as activity changes in multiple countries. The CDC does a very good job of categorizing the levels of risk and kinds of precautions that we should be taking based on countries. Some, like China and South Korea, are really strongly considered not doing any non-essential travel. Others, like Japan and Iran and Italy, are suggested that if you're at high risk or you're elderly, perhaps think about not traveling if you don't need to and I think it's a, it's a very personal decision. But again, as we continue to learn about spread of cases, the potential for needing to be monitored or quarantined when you return from travel could evolve while you're traveling.
1: Well, President Trump said the risk to Americans is very low and that people are being screened coming into the country from infected areas. What do we know about that screening process?
3: I'm not familiar with all of the details of the screening process. Usually it is a temperature check on arrival and public health departments checking in with the individuals on a daily basis to look for symptoms. I think that is an important part of the response, but as we're seeing more cases in other locations, we are not screening travelers returning from every country where there has been a reported case, nor do I think that's necessary. Uh, But as this coronavirus becomes more widespread globally, the screening of travelers becomes less reliable.
1: Are there warning signs we should be aware of if we've traveled and come back and start to feel under the weather?
3: That's a great question. The signs and symptoms of coronavirus are hard to distinguish from other flu-like illnesses. So fever, shortness of breath, and cough. And so I think it's important when you have those symptoms and you have a travel history, that you share that information with um, your doctor as you're discussing what might be going on.
1: What do we know about who is most vulnerable to COVID-19 and, and most vulnerable to some of the more extreme um, impacts of the infection?
3: Unlike many infections, for the example, the flu, where we worry about the very young and the very old, as well as people whose uh, immune systems aren't very strong. This coronavirus appears to be relatively sparing the young people. Children in particular don't seem to be getting very sick. It really is adults over 70 and particularly over 80 who are getting the most severely infected and also having the highest rate of fatalities.
1: Now, the virus is getting a lot of attention. But as you've mentioned, we're also in the midst of flu season and public health officials are characterizing the flu here in Illinois as widespread. So put this into context for us. If coronavirus spreads here, is it going to be any more dangerous than the flu?
3: I think that the concern with the coronavirus spread in regards to a comparison with flu is that from a flu standpoint, we have several things on our side. We have vaccination, which even if it's not 100% effective at preventing all symptoms, does significantly decrease your risk of death. And we have antiviral medications that can help treat the flu. We also have a community at large with some immunity to flu because we've had flu infections before in our lives. So coronavirus While we're not certain about the mortality rate, it seems to be a little bit higher than flu. We also don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have any antiviral medications, and no one has any immunity. So those are sort of the concerns of factors that are not in our favor.
1: What is the best way for us to access reliable information and updates on COVID-19?
3: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website on their landing page has a great Uh, list of resources, as does the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Chicago Department of Public Health. Uh, For people who like data visualization, uh, the Johns Hopkins University has an amazing global information systems website that tracks the number of cases and is updated frequently. You
1: mentioned preparedness and how to be prepared if there are school closures, if businesses close. Any advice on how we should plan for a potential spread, what we should have at home, just to be ready.
3: I think it's a great time to speak with your school, to speak with your employer, and learn logistically what are the options for remote learning, for work from home. Beyond that, making sure if you have prescription medicines that you have a month's supply, you know, accessible in case you can't get into your doctor because the healthcare system is overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. As far as stocking up on non-perishable food items and water and things, I don't, I don't know how overboard we need to go with that. It really is more the logistics of how are you going to live your life if you are less free to move about. In August of
1: 1963, more than 250,000 people came out to join the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That march set the stage for what would become Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most iconic speech. And now a new generation can witness King deliver that speech firsthand and walk in the footsteps of those who marched that August day, all thanks to virtual reality. Tomorrow, an immersive VR exhibit called The March will open at the DuSable Museum of African American History. I sat down with Mia Trams, Times Editorial Director of Immersive Experiences, and Alton Glass, founder of GRX Immersive Labs. They're both co-creators of the exhibit, and Mia kicked things off by explaining just how this exhibit came together.
0: Well, it's been a three-year journey um, that started uh, in the halls of our old-time offices, We had these giant um, photos of iconic images from the Life Archive hanging on the walls. There was Gandhi at the wheel, RFK, JFK, and there was a picture of Dr. King delivering um, a different speech at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, which became known as Give Us the Ballot. And um, it was taken kind of standing above and behind him looking out of the National Mall, and I would just walk past it every day and think, um, you know, thinking about VR experiences to make for time. And I just stopped in front of it one day and thought, if I recreated the March on Washington in VR, I could give you this perspective and I could put you this close to him. And that's where it began. Alton, how did you get involved with the project?
2: Oh, me, I have to tell that story, too. <laughs> <laughs> Jump uh, in, Mia. Uh... By, by the grace of God, the, the, the spirit just came and knocked on my door. I would say that. I had a, an image um of Dr. King sitting over my office uh, for like almost two years. So I never could have imagined that, you know, I'd be called to just say, hey, can you come uh, bring your immersive tourist skills to this project so she can kind of tell you how it all came together. Yeah, I mean,
0: it,
1: it, break that down for us
0: a bit. Well, so Alton and I represent a team of nearly 300 people that came together to build this experience, the exhibit, um, the installation that goes alongside the exhibit, all the moving parts. Um, but we had to pull together truly a dream team of technologists, educators, historians, costume designers, spatial audio designers, um, exhibit designers. You know, it's a, a massive team. And um, we were looking for someone to come in to collaborate with me creatively who really understand uh, understood virtual reality as a medium. And Alton was at the top of every list that people put together of, you know, who we should consider working with.
1: Alton, I would imagine that... Doing this work around such an important historical event that that brings that brings some pressure with it. How did you even start to approach the creation of this experience? Well, first I
2: had to cry at home first <laughs> and just get it out. It was a joyous cry and a, and a lot of pressure. Like, wow, this is a very big um, you know opportunity to um, take something that's so delicate, you know, and this legacy. And, uh, you know, the the, the state as well, you know, them offering, trusting us to take this and and convert um, this over to a new medium. Um, So, you know, just just really trying to do the research and really just just really focusing on the message and the intent behind not only Dr. King, but the people who are also sort of the unsung heroes that uh, he inspired and, and vice versa. Uh, a part of that movement and really, you know, capture their voice and their mission as best we could and do the research and let it live with us and it lived with me. And I learned so much about each and every one of these individuals throughout this project. Um, I felt like I went back to school and and came on the other side, you know, fired up just as much as they were back in the 60s. Mm -hmm.
1: Me, as we mentioned earlier, the exhibit opens tomorrow at the DuSable Museum here in Chicago. Why did you choose to to start it here?
0: Well, it's really important for us to um, bring this Experience, particularly to African American history museums. Um, the exhibit itself gives you a lot of context for understanding the march. We're teaching you about everything that came before and after in terms of the civil rights movement. But um, I, I really believe that putting it in a museum like the DuSable adds layers and layers to the exhibit and vice versa. They inform each other, they give you a, d- a deeper experience. Um so we we really were thrilled when um Perry their their president CEO um wanted to bring this to Chicago and uh they've been incredible partners as our premier location.
1: Well the exhibit can accommodate four visitors at a time and it's free with museum admission but time slots have to be booked in advance so heads up everybody but just kind of talk us through what people will experience Alton when they when they go into this virtual reality experience.
2: It's broken up into uh Three components. Um, there is a immersive audio experience in the beginning, where we just sort of strip down, you know, some of the senses and allow you to just really dig deep into the words of some of these previous civil rights leaders, uh, Fred Gray, uh, Frank Tom- with Frank Thomas, Hank, Hank Thomas. Thomas, sorry, and um, Reverend Webb, and the, they, they uh, really really take you deep into how the movement was started, and what was really powerful is uh, it was started with like really young people. You know, they were teenagers, you know, and in their 20s as well. So you get a chance to hear their account, like, first person, like, you're there with them as they retell this experience, like, in real time. Um, And we had a wonderful um, uh, producing team, Gravy Ward producing team, Brian Kennedy and uh, a few others produce uh, the music to this as well. And, and, uh, like, a sound design experience around the room. Um, And then from there, uh, Viola Davis, she uh, brings you into this experience and walks you through uh, and just inspires you to take the next step, to march on into the next phase of the exhibit, which is the virtual reality. She invites you back to transport to 1963. So you get an experience of what happened before, the stakes that they were up against before uh, they actually attended the march. And then from there, you move into the uh, VR exhibit. Maybe you want to.
1: And Appreciate Viola Davis is, is the narrator. I just want to make sure people caught that. But you yeah. talk about the also the physical experience of, of moving through this.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So after you leave um, this immersive audio experience that serves as an introduction and sets you up to understand um, what you'll see in the VR experience, you walk into a room where we put you into the headset. Um, Each visitor has a 10 by 15 foot space that you'll be able to fully walk around in once you're in the VR experience. Um, You know, it's called the March. We wanted you to be able to march. And when you put on the headset, um, we transport you back to 1963. You start on Constitution Avenue. You're standing amongst thousands of people as they march and sing and chant. And uh, we have in that scene um, Reverend uh, Joseph and his great-grandson, Lavelle. Reverend Joseph actually attended the march, and we were able to scan him. Um, He's still alive in in Los Angeles. We scanned him and his great-grandson, and they marched next to you on Constitution Avenue. Uh, We then take you to the National Mall. Um, You land there just as A. Philip Randolph, who was the creator of the March on Washington, is announcing that Dr. King is about to take the stage. And you have this vantage point from way back on the mall where you get to see the 250,000 people that came that day just lose their minds as Dr. King takes the stage and, and applaud and cheer. Um, We then kind of slowly move you closer and closer to the Lincoln Memorial until you are uh, in what we um, now fictionally called the dream sequence. Mm -hmm. And you get to stand about um, six feet away from Dr. King as he delivers the dream portion of the speech, which is the last uh, four and a half minutes.
1: Mia, are there any things people should know before they plan to visit the exhibit, things they should just be prepared for?
0: Well, you know, we're we're dealing with some heavy things, especially in the um, audio introduction um, for for the experience. Um, you know, we, we really did intend it to be for a younger audience, but I think parents should really think about, you know, at what age they think uh, is appropriate for their kids to be introduced to some of these things. Um, you know, we're talking about people that truly risk their lives to make change in our country and their experience in doing that. Um, so it can be, you know, it's it's a little heavy in that way, but we also really had the intention of um, empowering you with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the way it's presented is meant to be, um, you know, in a fashion that awakens your own voice inside of you and hopefully shows you, if you're a young person, the power that you can have to make change. Alton, speaking
1: as uh, from the technical side of it, what is it about virtual reality and immersing people in this experience that brings history to life in in a different way than say reading a book or or visiting a an exhibit at a museum you know in, in the way we would normally imagine that
2: yeah so what I love about virtual reality is you, you get an opportunity to uh, take your body and bring it into the frame you know which is amazing and a friend of mine who's a fellow VR creator he calls it uh, prosthetic memories you know it's like you're embedding a new experience uh, and when you come out of it it's something that you felt. You didn't see, you know, and you say, "Well, I experienced this." And with that ability, our goal is to, you know, they say, if you want to stop, you know, telling the same story, you know, you you have to create a new one. And we're we're creating a new narrative around it, how empowering it was during this time, and how these the, the people who attended these the march, um, they did it with strategy and intent, and they were not just you know oppressed. Um, They they planned every detail, and I think that's a beautiful part about experiencing that and feeling the essence uh, in virtual reality with thousands of people in a crowd and carrying that energy, and you get an opportunity to actually walk with them in virtual reality. It's something that you can't do in any other medium.
1: Well, Mia, you mentioned uh, Reverend Jeffrey Joseph, who's 90 now, but he was at the march, stood 50 feet away from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he gave that speech. And we have a clip of him talking about the experience of being at the 1963 march.
2: It was a whole lot of uh, fear involved in lives in danger. People who wanted to be for you, they were in just as much Danger as those that were against us.
1: Mia, the exhibit serves as a history lesson, but is there also a call to action here?
0: Absolutely. Um, so when Alton joined us for this project, the first day he came to set uh, to work with us, he brought um, a quote with him from Dr. King that says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And um, it really became the beating heart of this project. You'll see that as a motif running through the exhibit, there's a lot of different ways we work the imagery of light and the darkness into it. And we really hope that it awakens in each person, and especially young people, their own sense of the light that they bring into the world and how powerful that is. And um, you know, we are teaching about history, but we're trying to wake up your voice and, and see what you'll do and what you'll be inspired to do when you come out of the exhibit.
1: today's Reset. Make sure you're subscribed so that you never miss a conversation, or tell your smart speaker to play Reset with Jen White. That's me. Thanks so much for listening. Let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.